Good morning, Professor McCorriston. Good morning, Dr. McClymans. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for making time for this interview and conversation that we'll have for the next hour or so. Um, and hello to our Facebook friends who hopefully are here live with us, um, still learning these tools. So I, I, I can't, oh yeah, I can see there's three people. So hello, welcome. And um, I'll just briefly introduce our guest today. Um, this is Professor Joy McCorston. She's a professor of anthropology at Ohio State University, of course. Um, and she is she has degrees from Yale, Sorbonne, uh, from the University of London. Um, you know, her PhD is from Yale. And uh, so Ohio State's very lucky to have such a prestigious scholar, as you will learn. And um, we were just going over her CV, just we, we were having a private conversation before this, and I had counted up about three million in grants <laughs> that she's gotten over, over her career. Um, so very, very impressive scholar. She's done extensive field work. So she has immense international experience um, and, you know, you know, deep, you know, embedded experience in the Middle East. She's done, um, we're going to talk a lot about her fieldwork in Yemen today, but she's also done fieldwork in Syria and Oman. Um, and of course, you know, spending time in France and in the UK for her studies. And I'm sure many more places that, um, that I'm not aware of. Um, uh, her husband is also an anthropologist and I'm sure her, her son is growing up with just amazing cross-cultural experiences as well. So um, yeah, it's it's definitely been an honor for me to know Dr. McCorriston and she's always been a supportive force for myself and for the director of our center, um, Dr. Alain Payand, um, you know, um, an ally and a friend in terms of, you know, really bringing out um, Middle East studies at Ohio State and, um, I think one of the um, one of the things that pops out at me when looking at her career and just knowing her is her leadership. You know, she directs teams. She's a great team builder, um, she, and I am on a team with her right now, which hopefully we'll get to that project uh, if we have enough time. Um, and she's just she's just amazing, and and we're so lucky to have her leadership at OSU, and she has sparked and forged all this teamwork to create new knowledge um, about our understanding of not only the Middle East, but actually of, you know, humankind, because we're talking about anthropology and how the different lifestyles and ways of uh, making a living that people have done for thousands of years. So let's dig into it. Um, why don't you tell us about your, you just recently published a book um, and I'm going to share my screen so I can show the, the cover to people. But why don't you tell us about your book and how, you know, how do you feel about that? Does it feel good to have that published? Oh, it feels immensely good to have it published. Um, and the book is available online through open access, at least through May, um, through the Kotzen Institute of Archaeology at University of California, Los Angeles. That 
is um, a concession to the pandemic and the restriction on physical circulation that we are all facing. So the book is called The Landscape History of Hadramaut. I started writing it in 2013, went on sabbatical and continued uh, chipping away at it. Uh, it has um, the contributions of the research team that I worked with in Yemen uh, from 1996 to 2008. And we have um, had many seasons in the remote desert um, mountains of the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula. The um, project meant that we camped together in the desert where there was no water, um, seven hours from the nearest grocery store uh, for um, two months at a time. Uh, we got to know each other really well. We uh, worked closely as a team with uh, Yemenis and um, we, we had French participants, um, some participants from the UK, and um, the occasional participant from uh, Canada, well, a Canadian um, graduate student who matured through that project. So we were a multinational team. We had a, a large contingent of uh, French colleagues involved. Um, so we were a multinational team and very, um, uh, very much enjoyed the experience of working together. So the book really is a culmination, not only of the research and the considerable analysis we did on the things we found, but also on um, the, it's a compendium that includes some of our stories, some of the experience of being in the field together. I should probably back up also um, and just say that it's an archaeological report. It is a comprehensive scientific um, account of work that we did. A great deal of it was funded by the US taxpayer through the National Science Foundation. And the project over many seasons developed a, a number of interesting sidelines, but throughout we were really focused on trying to understand how the um, domesticated plants and animals that were uh, domesticated and became part of human food production systems elsewhere came to be adopted and integrated into Arabian ways of life. And when we set out on this project, that was something people didn't know and was intrinsically interesting because the southern part of Arabia lies at the epicenter of three different regions where people did domesticate plants and animals. And we wanted to know if you have a choice of materials from three different kind of packages of how to produce food, what do you choose? What drives that process? Um, something with broader implications for understanding how food production, which supports virtually every society on earth, 
today spread around the globe. So you're talking about domesticating plants and animals and what about hunting and gathering? Is that combined with that or? Well, we know that Arabians, uh, that there were people indigenous to Arabia from at least 30,000, maybe 50,000, um, possibly 80,000 years ago. Hmm. So we know people have been there a long time. We know that in a period 20,000 years ago when um, the earth had massive ice sheets and a lot of water was locked up in ice. We know Arabia was very dry and people seem to have retreated to a few little refugia or enclaves. And after that, they repopulated Arabia out of those enclaves. And they did so by exploiting the plants and animals that were in Arabia. So they were hunting and gathering people. And at some point, which we now think is about 6,000, about the 8,000 years ago, 6,000 BCE, people began to adopt domesticated animals um, that had been domesticated elsewhere. So what kind of animals did they domesticate? Well, we didn't know until uh, at, until our research project was done, um, or at least you know that was something that we made a big contribution. And way down at the southern tip of Arabia, in the dry mountains, we found a site that has the earliest domesticated cattle mm. and the earliest domesticated sheep that come from Arabia. Wow. And and it was a, you know, I want to tell a little story here about yeah. the field work because it's, I think it's one of the great stories of being in a multinational, multidisciplinary team. So we'd been working together. We lived in the desert. Um, we all pitched in to help each other's agendas because there were several different things going on. And sometimes you needed all hands on deck to get one thing done. And so we were conducting a, an archaeological survey looking for archaeological sites, which the um, program that we had laid out that we wanted to do followed a very American style of doing things. Okay. Which we um, took a designated a, a parcel of land um, and kind of marked that out. And we would choose it kind of randomly uh, using a statistical approach to randomize our selection mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. And then we'd walk, um, you know, we'd plod across it in the heat, in the desert, everybody carrying little flags and looking on the surface for indications of sites. Well, the Yemeni scholars had been trained in a different tradition um, by their Russian colleagues in the time when, when South Yemen was a, a Russian, uh, you know, it was a communist state. Mm -hmm. And they thought that was a crazy idea because they knew exactly which kind of places you should look. And our French colleagues felt the same way. They were like, you, you won't find anything here. Why don't we go over there where we know we'll find something? And, and we had a, um, 
a scientific, statistically um, uh, designed reason for doing this that would allow us to make um, quantitative predictions about sites. So it's kind of like intuitively it feels crazy like that. Why would yeah. Yeah, it, intuitively it felt crazy. But and so the story is it was valid. Yes. Yeah. It was a science it was a scientific um quantitative approach. So, but you know, under the sun, uh it, you know, in the desert, it doesn't feel very smart. And so, you know, the French and the Yemenis doggedly um, patiently plodded along with us. They thought we were crazy. Mm -hmm. And then one day, my French colleague, Remy Cassard, who has developed into a, um, an outstanding scholar uh, at the forefront of French research, had uh, an epiphany where he dropped to his knees and you would have thought he was going to pray. He was just ecstatic because the ground was carpeted with these um, hundreds and hundreds of beautifully napped stone pieces that said to the trained eye, this is a major occupation of very, very early um, people who were right in that period of time when domestication was happening. So you said napped stones? What are napped stones? So when you take a piece of flint or church um, and you strike it, it's called, the archaeologists call this napping when a stone okay. toolmaker uses a particular um, sequence of techniques to uh, get a, an arrowhead or some pre-imagined, pre-designed um, tool that was uh, that's characteristic. So basically like you're striking rocks together and it flakes a piece of the rock off you're trying to shape. You're That's like, right. Okay. That's right. And it has it leaves a very characteristic signature and stone is a really um, durable object. So some cultures in the world have left almost nothing behind except their stone tools. So it becomes right. a, a real um, calling card if you like for certain cultural um, affiliations. So if you're ever wondering why there's such an emphasis on, you know, arrowheads or like uh, anything made of stone, really, it's simply because it doesn't disintegrate. And so, you know, it might seem like a minor part of the culture. But if you study those carefully, it can unlock certain, um, you know, areas of understanding about you know, what life was like. Exactly. And that's something that Remy went on to do. He wrote a dissertation at the Sorbonne, which was uh, highly praised and won the you know top awards um, on those stone tools and really defined for archaeologists in the future the patterns, the cultural patterns in how people made their tools which means that next time we go out and do a survey in the desert in Arabia and pick up a stone tool, we know kind of who it, who it came from and what period it, it belongs to. There you go. There you go.
like knowing basically kind of who was there, who was there, you know, how long have people been there and then who was there when. <laughs> so that's one of the um, important chapters in the book is the, dis the discovery of that site, the, the explanation of the work we did there, the analysis of the stone tools, the analysis of the animal bones that allowed us to find a date, the very earliest cattle and sheep and to associate those with a culture of um, foraging, hunting and gathering people who first picked up those animals and used them. But I'd like to talk about another chapter in that book. If okay, you yeah. yeah. Uh, so one of, the, one of the questions that people ask me as an archeologist is, have you ever found anything really interesting? Um, and they kind of expect, well, some people expect, you know, Tutankhamun's tomb. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, no, I haven't found any gold treasure. I, I, I did once find um, a little strip of gold that had been on the bottom of a Roman imperial standard, but that's another story. Um, what I think is the most exciting discovery to date was a a ring of 40 or more cattle skulls that had been um, stripped of their flesh, many of them, the mandibles had been taken off, um, the tongues had been cut out, they had been shoved into the mud of a stream bank. How did you know the tongues had been cut out? Well, that's the work of Louise Martin, a British okay. um, zooarchaeologist who studied these cattle skulls after we got them out of the ground. But when we found them, um, we found them by the same kind of method I just described, this plodding survey in places that nothing should be. And we discovered these um, bones crumbling out of the side of a little gully. Mm. So we started to excavate, and lo and behold, here were these um, cattle skulls, which were, the excavation was incredible. We had to um, pour water on the um, mm. this concrete hard, silty ground, and then slowly chip away from the bone, just like you were um, a dentist picking things off of teeth. I mean, it was just really, and they came out with all the teeth. And people worked really hard in the field on this. I, our Yemeni colleagues um, developed tendinitis and ended up like wrapping their elbows and their arms. They, wow. they refused to stop working and take a break. And then we had this big flood and we were cut off from the site and all of the bone was exposed and it was a very fragile state. And one of the Bedouin who was working for us on his own, we were cut off. We couldn't talk to them because we were on the other side of this flooded valley. And this man walked up to the site from his um, from the cave where he was staying with his family and his flocks. And he slept beside those exposed skulls to keep anybody else who was curious from coming mm. along and messing with them until the floodwaters receded. Oh. So we got these skulls out of the ground, but they have an incredible story because what we realized was that this was the site of a large gathering 
where there was a sacrifice of 40 cattle at a time. And if you think about it, that's a heck of a lot of meat. That's a lot of meat. If you do the back of the envelope calculation, and we did a little bit more it's than that. It's a big party. It's a big party. It was a huge <laughs> feast. And How many thing, people would that feed? I mean, that's a lot. Well, if you had one meal, it would feed 5,000 people. Wow. So the question is, how many people did it feed? Because um, we're in a desert and it was a, you know, a little bit wetter, but it was by no means the Garden of Eden when we were, um, yeah. when people were living there and, and had cattle would be there. Like it doesn't, like, I, I was surprised to learn um, that there were cattle there, actually. There was it, the the climate was wetter until about six thousand years ago. So this site was about six thousand five hundred years old. So we could we were surprised to find cattle there, um, and there was a little bit of a hilarious story about thinking they were camels and they weren't camels, and we figured out they were cattle skulls. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we um, once we had dug them out and done the analysis and realized that they had all been killed at once and butchered at once. And this ring of skulls had been set up kind of to commemorate this huge gathering, a sacrifice and a feast. We realized that the landscape back then couldn't support 5,000 people. Mm. It couldn't support 1,500 people. It could permanently support probably a maximum of about 60 people. And so that led the British analysts to look at the teeth of these cattle. And what they learned from that was that the animals had grown up in three, maybe four different places. So they belonged to at least four herds, maybe more. But the last two weeks of their life, they'd been eating the same food um, in the same place. Fattening, fattening them up. Right. So what we began to see was a gathering of mm -hmm. people from far away, mm -hmm. bringing their animals, um, coming together, having a big feast, um, and then setting up a kind of a memorial to it. Right. This was um, a pretty big discovery for ancient Arabia. And I'd like you to imagine with me and jump forward about, uh, let's see, four, 5,000 years from that 6,500 year old feast. Okay. And if you jump forward 6,000, uh, you know, th that period of time, you come to um, the pre-Islamic era when we know from literary sources that sacrifice gathering and a large commemorative feast um, was, you know, was the major way in which people formed a social bond mm -hmm. above and beyond sort of like their home and their village. That it was really the major practice in Arabia um, before the Islamic period in which people belonged to a bigger community. Yeah, absolutely. Because they had done this thing. They had, you know, they had gone to the gathering, participated in the feast, 
And, and, and it, allows, it probably allows different groups to intermarry as well, right? I mean, wouldn't that be oh. a part of the... Oh, I'm sure this was really important. If you yeah. think about being a small herding family wandering around in the desert, maybe not wandering, but following mm -hmm. um, a seasonal round, and you're trying to find enough food for your cattle or your sheep and, and goats, and you can't really hang out with 5,000 people and all the animals they have. <laughs> right. But say you're five to seven people in your family with maybe 60 animals, 60 to 80 animals, and you're moving around trying to get them food. You need a way to find a wife for your son or a husband for your daughter. You need to find out where there's been rain this year and the grazing is going to be good. You need to find a way to get um, a few uh, pieces of obsidian to make the very sharpest stone tools that you like, but mm. the obsidian isn't local. Um, you need to find out uh, if there are areas where there are disturbances or raids or if there are hostilities towards people you're connected to somewhere. So information and exchange of information, marriage partners, uh, uh, exotic stones and shells mm -hmm. have to move along networks that are formed through people being connected to each other. But they have to have a way to be connected and, and to affirm the sense of belonging to a social order. Yes, absolutely. And so these gatherings would they be like uh, once a year, um, follow a certain seasonal pattern? Do you, do you know or can you tell from the record? Or? We think they probably were annual. Um, and that's because we did a lot of study of the environment and the information that's available of what the environment used to be like. And so this valley where we did most of our work uh, called Wadi Sana, it used to flood every year. Um, mm. We were there for a very rare flooding event, but the floods, when there was more rain 6,500 years ago, the floods mm. were annual. And it would have been very dangerous to be in those narrow, deep canyons with all your animals. So people would only have gone there in the dry season um, or right at the end of the uh, flood season when there was this lush growth of grass um, that the animals could could benefit from. So basically this wadi is like an empty riverbed that when it fills up, it's like rushing massive like white water or something like that. Yeah, for people in the United States who are listening, this is um, an environment that's quite like some of the arroyos of the Southwest, where flash flooding can be quite dangerous and the canyon sides can be very steep. Um, the, the great uh, Wadi Hadramaut, which splits right through the southern part of Yemen, um, is like the Grand Canyon with these mm. high plateaus and then a whole different life going on way down, you know, a mile down in the valley. Wow. Incredible, incredible landscapes. And that's actually, we didn't mention the title, I don't think, of your book. It's Landscape History of Hadramaut, correct? So, that's yeah. right. 
That's right. And that was really because um, I and the team see humans as uh, part of and forming landscape. It's really hard to talk about life in Arabia in the past without thinking about people adapting to and shaping the landscapes they're in. And even though we don't think of people shaping and changing a place like a desert, uh, we do and we have, and we could find the traces of that. We saw that people um, practice technologies of, of channeling and managing water flow so mm. that they could enhance the growth of certain parts of the landscape and, and put more water on it so that they would get better grass. We saw that they burned um, vegetation where it was dense to suppress the trees and um, really enhance the amount of grass that the cattle would have. Hmm. Shaping, shaping the landscape. Shaping the landscape, forming a, a little niche that was um, better suited to support humans and their domesticated animals. And people started doing that just as soon as they had domesticated animals. Wow. So that's so probably a pattern you find elsewhere in the world. It is. And the experience of working in this area and my, my pleasure at working with teams um, led to uh, a textbook that I wrote with my colleague, Dr. Julie Field, here at The Ohio State University, where we work interested in that process of, you know, the technical term for it is human behavioral ecology. And we were interested in how that process played out in a huge narrative that is our global landscape. And we wrote a, a textbook called World Prehistory and the Anthropocene, in which we did just that. We looked at the long-term process of humans shaping our earth and shaping our planet and make the argument that what we see today in climate change is the outcome and the, content, the continuation of a process that we can trace back as far as we can see humans. Mm. Makes it sound even more difficult to solve that problem. <laughs> well, that would be a pessimistic way to look at it. Can I offer an optimistic one? Oh, please do, yes. So what we, as archeologists, and this is not um, an observation unique to me and Dr. Field, but it's in fact something that archeologists can bring to, um, as, a, as a really important relevant lesson for our times. When we look at how people have shaped the earth and shaped the environment, whether you're talking about Polynesians who voyaged in voyaging canoes and settled the Pacific Islands across a vast expanse, or whether you're talking about Sumerians who used um, alcohol to purify water so they could live in deserts and in densely packed cities where sanitation would have been a problem if you didn't use a little bit of uh, alcohol to oh, uh, wow. drink your water. So 
whatever whatever part of shaping the world to uh, um, benefit human population and and um, survival you look at technology is at the core mm. and technology has been there all the way back to the first stone tools Absolutely. that helped yeah. humans to strip are a form of technology like we think of technology in terms of devices and cell phones and things but an anthropological perspective is that technology is I don't know, maybe you can explain something, a slightly different perspective. Technology is the cultural practices that allow humans to interface with the environment in a way no other animal can do. Um, and so, you know, technology is part of human culture and it's part of being human all the way back to the very first um, stone tools. And those those first stone tools, way back to say the old one, um, even pre-human use of of stone, allowed humans to access and scavenge carcasses of animals and become meat eaters, which had tremendous impacts on our biology and ultimately our reproductive success and our ability to spread across the face of the planet. Oh, that's so, fascinating. Yeah, so, it's not, that's not my specialty, but it's a, a well-known um, yeah. part of anthropology. I always wondered, you know, um, about the insect eating that maybe our ancestors did that now is not culturally appropriate, but, you know, like the well, we've, we've found protein, I guess probably um, nutritionally, a protein isn't necessarily always just a protein, but um, anyway, that's I'm digressing. It's just fascinating. So yeah, so technology is a big part of this story. And um, yeah, so where were we about technology? Oh yeah, you're talking about how that affects climate change. And so if you think about it as just a part of our DNA, like that's how we, function like our or if you think of our culture as an extension of ourselves you know um that i guess if we become more conscious of that we can change the way we can impact ourselves collectively and not just like sort of more selfishly or more kind of the short-sighted ways of looking at you know what we're trying to impact i think in, in looking at our anthropocene and so I'm still talking about this textbook that we've written, um, World Prehistory and the Anthropocene. We can see that technology has been the interface with humans and environmental challenges. And it always has been our interface. It is the, um, it is the cause or it is the tool that we have used to occupy, spread and occupy all the places in the globe. I mean, there's even a station in South, you know, in the South Pole. Um, and it's technology that has allowed us to, to do this. So I think it would be overly pessimistic to think that we've come to the end of that relationship, that you know, we don't have enough human ingenuity and we won't be able to use technologies and 
invent technologies that will allow us um, to interface with the environments of the future. It may well be that the environments of the future are going to be different from what we have today. And I'm not a climate scientist, so I don't have anything of any expertise to draw on there. But uh, climate change is real and science tells us that. And we at Ohio State have gone a long way to contributing to that understanding of climate change with the work of the Bird Center. And, uh, and so we understand that environments are going to continue to change just as they have in the past. But we have not been stripped of our cultural DNA, as you put it. Um, we have not been stripped of our ability to design new technologies and adapt new ways of, of social interaction mm. to the kinds of environments we find ourselves in. So I'm hopeful um, about our future, even though I recognize that I, I can't predict it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's absolutely within our grasp to to change our. I mean, we're good at adapting, right? Like, doesn't doesn't that story also have that ending to it or that um, takeaway? Oh, it does, and this touches on something that's been very personal to me. There are. Um, you know, it's understandable for people to say, why do we spend money going to the moon? Why do we spend money searching for what life was like in the Arabian desert 6,500 years ago? How does that have anything to do with our crises and problems today? Wouldn't it be better to spend taxpayer money on poverty, um, on uh, education? And I hear those arguments. I feel that the archaeology I do and my colleagues do has um, been extremely instrumental into bringing us to recognize what is our human nature. If we don't look mm -hmm. into the past to understand these relationships through building up case study after case study of how humans interact with their environments, then we can't understand the fundamental relationships and abstract uh, processes that are at the core of our existence on the planet. So I would argue that archeology span has made and continues to make this incredible contribution to our understanding of what it takes to face our challenges today. Mm -hmm. That's the quote of the day. <laughs> and that was how Dr. Field and I got into writing this textbook. Um, if I you know, sort of tell you the story of how that came about, it was in part because um, we felt like the way we were teaching our introductory archaeology class was not capturing the attention of students because it didn't feel quite relevant enough to mm -hmm. the changing concerns of education as job skills training mm -hmm. and we wanted to that, that's, a, that's a very big challenge for academia today just for our audience like universities are 
um, especially in terms of how we relate to the government and you know our use of taxpayer funds and all those things like a lot of times the government uses the term workforce like you brought that word up and it's because you know not only the government but people want to see that their education has a tangible benefit and that you know people are going to be ready to succeed in their lives you know as a result of it and you know um that that though can take away from if if we're just teaching skills at the university it takes away from the idea that we're actually developing in, in a long-term perspective human knowledge about ourselves about the world about the universe all those things and you know there's it's just like the age-old debate of what's more important and so you know i yeah i just wanted to um really emphasize what a big challenge you're taking up that a lot of professors not only won't take up but are really like adamant about it like no we don't we're not workforce training like we don't even consider that so yeah so you you took on a challenge there i feel like we have like in my career, I've been able to contribute not only to understanding what life was like in Arabia during the Neolithic period, but to make major contributions to the challenges of our time. In a, a few years ago, the challenges of our time were uh, the aftermath of 9-11 and the uh, Arab Spring in the Middle East, the uh, intersection of American security interests with contemporary Middle Eastern societies and aspirations. I'm not a political scientist, so I'm not going to delve deep into that, but I should say that I was traveling and a guest yeah. in the Middle East through all of that. I've spent 40 years as a guest in majority Muslim communities um, across the Middle East in places that bring shivers to many peoples, uh, many Americans um, today, Syria, Jordan, uh, not so much, um, uh, Egypt, Yemen, and most recently the southern part of, and northern part of Oman. Um, I've traveled briefly in Saudi Arabia and several other Middle Eastern countries. So I have a, I came to the post 9-11 with a sense of responsibility to, on the one hand, serve as a science, I and my team serving as what I called science ambassadors in the Middle East, the opportunity for Middle Easterners to meet um, their first Americans. Uh, in a, an atmosphere, a political atmosphere that was supercharged. I also felt um, a sense of responsibility in the classroom for American students to meet someone who understands um, some things about the Middle East that are not widely recognized and to be a teacher, not only for the students who wanted to learn about the archeology span of Arabia 6,500 years ago, but for the students who wanted some exposure 
to the Middle East who were studying Arabic and wanted to know a little bit more about culture. To students, I had um, a number of veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan uh, American forces abroad in my classroom who came back from one experience of the Middle East and wanted to broaden what they knew while they were going through college on the GI Bill. And I've always felt like I needed to be a teacher and um, a facilitator and provide courses that are relevant to those students as well. So my personal experiences in the Middle East have formed a part of my teaching, a part of my writing, um, and a part of my mission um, in, in this charged atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, like um it goes deeper than just a job. It's 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 yeah, it's very um very much a calling. It does. Can I do we have time for me to tell you a little story? All of you out there? Well, we we do. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. So, one of the um ways that I came to think about this was observing the questions that people ask me. I uh, have spoken to a very diverse set of audiences, ranging from petroleum workers in oil fields in the Middle East, university students in Sana'a, Yemen, um, the Department or the Ministry of Heritage and Culture in Oman, students in the classrooms and in kind of public venues like this one here. And I've noticed that there's a difference in the way uh, audiences frame their questions. When I teach in the United States, or I'm speaking to a largely Western audience, the question that comes up first is usually something like, "What's yeah, but what's it like to work as a woman over there? Mm -hmm. uh, and I've noticed that my uh, co my countrymen here in the United States have um, on occasion found it really hard to believe that uh, a woman leads a team of archaeologists in the remote wildlands of um, Yemen where all the women uh, or most of them are covered in black from head to toe with only their eyes showing. I mean, what's it like? How can you do that? Um, go out there as a woman and lead a team. And my answer to that is that uh, people in the Middle East, as I can, as far as I can tell, rarely see me as a woman first. Mm. Um, I mentioned that I uh, play a role as an American science ambassador. So the fact that I'm American and foreign um, and often the first one of each of those categories that anyone has met. Think of these Bedouin uh, tending their sheep in Wadi Sana who never go to school, mm -hmm. um, who uh, have very little commercial interaction with the outside world. So I'm, I'm an American, I'm a foreigner, I'm a Christian, mm -hmm. and the first, you know, right. that, that's a hard one uh, to get over an infidel. Who I, can, I can relate to that. Yeah. From when I lived in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, so by the time they get to me being a woman, it's kind of, if they notice at all, it's kind of inconsequential because I've already got so much going on that's strange. 
um, that I'm a Westerner. Um, and, and so it, it's- It also could be that their gender roles aren't necessarily what Americans perceive them to be, even though it's because they're dressed all in black, it seems like they're really rigid about it, but maybe they're not as rigid as, as we think. Well, I guess my point is that my gender is not the first thing that, that people see of, about me. Mm. And it's not the, although that's an American um, assumption about the Middle East and mm -hmm. what is the most important socially qualifying characteristic. Um, I'm rich compared to many of the people I meet. Um, so I have this fabulous access to resources that are unimaginable. Um, and so that, um, that quality of being, you know, of my gender is important to Americans, but not so much, mm -hmm. um, at least not at, at first importance in the Middle East. The other part of this story is, do you want to know the question that people in the Middle East ask me? I do. <laughs> <laughs> because it's fairly consistent. If I'm talking to a, an audience of people who are, um, uh, who are Muslim and are in kind of a traditional setting or are among compatriots, the first question is, and who are not archaeologists, not used to archaeologists. Right. Okay, gotcha. The first, the first question is, yes, but what does Quran say about your research? And the first time I heard this question, I was like, I was flustered. I thought, oh my gosh, uh, um, I'm not a Muslim. I have no right to say anything about Quran. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't have anything to do with my research. <laughs> Why are they asking this? Yeah. Um, and I blubbered something about, you know, please ask my Yemeni colleague who's here with me. I, I'm, you know, not qualified to answer that. And then the question came again and again. And I started to ask myself, why is this question being asked? Yeah. Not, how do I answer it? But what is really the question? What is the question? Mm -hmm. um, and I began to, and this was something I, I spoke about with um, Dr. Payind at some length uh, many years ago. Uh, I began to consider the epistemologies of knowledge or, or the way, you know, what are sanctioned important ways of coming to knowledge. We in the West and I as a social scientist um, place a high value on science as a way of coming to knowledge using the scientific method, our five senses of observation to gather data, um, whether that's to test a hypothesis or to um, gather a series of case studies that helps us formulate an idea, mm -hmm. a, a, a broader theoretical observation. And that's something that's very much embedded in our education system, in our way of thinking. Of course, we have other epistemologies. We have a historic epistemology that is based on theories of how history works. We, um, we have a religious epistemology. Creationists uh, would argue that, uh, that revelation divine revelation mm -hmm. is uh, the way we know about how the earth was formed. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we're used to those different epistemologies in the West. As I started to dig into this, I realized that question, what does Quran say about your research, is really a question about epistemology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where we in the West um, are used to a scientist getting up, expecting that the talk is going to be about science, structuring it to speak to knowing about that way, presenting some data, explaining what it means, interpreting that I data. Absolutely that when people say data, they mean science. Like it's, They mean science. Yeah, like it started, well, where's the data? Do you have data on that? And I'm thinking, you mean raw data? No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, go on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's invoking an epistemology. Yes. It immediately ties the conversation and the expectation that valuable knowledge comes out of this way of knowing. I want to say again, it's not the only way of knowing that mm -hmm. we use in the West. There's a way of knowing called discourse, and I'm not going to go there, but I'm just mm -hmm. mentioning that there are other ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, in that question, what does Quran say about your research? I came to realize it's actually a challenge to epistemology. It's actually saying to me, you're starting from a place that I don't think you, you know, I'm not used to you starting or I don't think you should be starting. The, in um, an Islamic uh, society, the highest, and these, this is very structured, the highest epistemology is revelation. The highest way of knowing about the world comes from the revelation in Quran, which, is, uh, which was revealed and explains, um, explains things. Explains how we came to be. How, it's an anthropology, right? I mean, in some, in some ways, like it's, that's what it is. I I would um, hesitate to interpret Quran as being anything other than a revelation, which is what Muslims who know it better than I uh, agree. So it is an epistemology. It's a way of knowing the world. And in as I came to understand, if, if I'm correct in this, in Islamic faith, um, scientific epistemology is recognized, but it is a lesser form of knowledge. Um, and that goes right back to the beginnings of Islam. So, so, you're, so just to back up here, so if you're like talking to local civilians who aren't archaeologists and they're, you know, kind of wondering what it's all about, like, why are you here? What, what are you doing? Kind of thing. They're thinking about it in terms, yes, they recognize that it's rooted in science and that's a valid way of, you know, thinking about research, but then they also need to um, kind of grapple with the idea that, you know, the Quran also mentions life before the, before Islam, obviously, because it came before there was Islam. It started to be revealed before there was, um, I guess, a codified religion based around the Quran, you know? So, they're kind of grappling with two strands or more, maybe. <laughs> it's probably local traditions and histories as well. That's true. And I don't, I wouldn't want this anecdote in any way to suggest that the second, you know, the, the popular audiences who ask this question of me in the Middle East are somehow 
less knowledgeable than popular audiences in the United States. Mm -hmm. I've given talks at churches where people ask yeah. about, you right. know, the Bible and creation. Absolutely. So we have those multiple epistemologies that are strong um, about the past in our yeah. own society as well. That is so but true. I'm, I think it's just, it's, it's in our language, you know, so we don't even think about it because, you know, you're just speaking, you're just communicating, you're just, but yeah, so many ideas come from the Bible in our society here, like in Columbus, for example, we don't really think about it. So many come from Shakespeare or from, you know, there's a whole canon there. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. So um, since we are uh, needing to wrap up pretty soon, can you tell us about your future projects or maybe just what you're working on now that you'd like to to share? Absolutely. Um, so I've talked about how it's been important for my anthropological skills and research to be relevant to the challenges of our time. And this is a project, you know what my next project is, Melinda, yeah. because you're part of that team. Um, I realized uh, in conversation with other team members this summer that um, my skills and experience as a team builder, a team leader, a grant writer, um, were skills that I should draw on to be an ally in the social justice mm -hmm. and Black Lives Matter movement. And that while I would like to march in the streets and have marched in the streets, uh, these are skills that I could be sharing um, with an important social concern of our time. So with you, Melinda, and um, colleagues here at Ohio State and outside of Ohio State, uh, we've written a proposal to uh, build a model for how we might address um, implicit bias and prejudice here at the Ohio State University. And to this, I bring not um, my, not any uh, particular academic qualifications as a scholar of racism in this country, but um, the habits of scholarship and the skill set to pull in people who do have um, those qualifications and that deep knowledge and also have skills like yours that um, will help carry this idea into a working um, team and a working project. And so we're pretty excited about what that's going to look like. Yes, yeah, um, I'm pretty excited. Um, I think it's gonna really engage um, student perspectives and faculty perspectives in a new way. And it's, I, I like how we're really focused on action too, which sets it apart from the typical grant project at a university, which is more focused on writing a text as the action where we're starting with action. We're, you know, um, you know gonna be setting up activities to, you know, immediately start benefiting um, students at not only our university, but at historically black colleges and universities. And so we're just starting with that from the get-go and then developing our understanding, you know, um, as we reflect on how things are going and how we can improve and most importantly, how the institutions can change. 
you know, and how they should change. And it may seem like a long way away from the Neolithic in Southern Arabia, but it draws not only on my skills, but things that we know from the Middle Eastern Studies Center, which is part of um, an Office of International Affairs where we're really good at uh, understanding culture and cultural difference and um, in uh, sending people abroad at, to experience a broader world than the one that their own prejudices and biases have um, have shaped for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really think, you know, also what we're looking at is the problem of silos at universities where you have a lot of uh, not only professors, but other types of professionals working on the front lines with um, you know, issues like cultural differences. Um, and they kind of stay in their lane because they're so busy and because there's not as much emphasis on you know, reflection and evaluation. There's kind of, in speaking of American culture, it's kind of like, you know, be productive, keep going, going. <laughs> you have to like stop and reflect sometimes and see how, oh, well, we're, we're doing overlaps with what another office is doing, or maybe their perspective on what we're doing could really help us think more critically about it. And so um, that's also, I think, uh, a unique um, or, you know, a very needed aspect of the project. So so very exciting. So I'll put some, when I post this podcast, I'll put links to our project as well. And I'd also like to make sure to put uh, you know, other things, if there, because we might have some Ohio State students here in the audience, they may want to take a course with you. Like, what, what courses do you offer at Ohio State? Uh, I have taught, you know, in, with the support of the Middle Eastern Studies Center for years, um, I have been teaching Middle Eastern Studies courses. So I teach a course of the um, archaeology of the ancient Near East that focuses on ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia. Hmm. I teach a course on the archaeology of the Holy Land that is uh, a course that shows what happened, what we know archaeologically about the Eastern Mediterranean and, and the area that's modern Israel as um, a multicultural, multi-ethnic community through all the time that we can see archaeologically and shows how the great religions um, emerged from that, or some of the great religions emerged from that polyglot, um, polyethnic community. Um, I also teach a course called Contemporary Perspectives on the Ancient Near East, which has discourse as an epistemology and is uh, focused on how the way we understand ourselves has shaped the way we think about what the ancient Near East was like and what it means um, as part of our own histories. So those are some of the Near Eastern courses I teach. Wow, those, I wanna take all three. <laughs> And I also take the, the Introduction to Archaeology course, which uses this World Prehistory textbook that I... Oh, okay, yeah. So that's a good entry-level mm -hmm. uh, general education course for students at OSU. Yes, yes. So, and then, so we've um, covered your um, 
what, what was it called? World Prehistory and the Anthropocene is your textbook recently. And then there's also Landscape History of Hadramaut. Um, and you said you were, are, are you working on a book now? Did I get that right? I or? am. The uh, Ministry of Heritage and Culture in Oman intends to publish a book called Persistent Pastoralism in its Archaeology of uh, Oman series. Um, and it is a book that will report on the research that my team has been doing since 2009 in the southern part of Oman. Okay, well, um, I'm going to open it up to comments. I don't see any so far. Um, and again, I'm, I'm still learning these tools. So forgive me if I missed any questions that you might have had in the audience. Um, <clears throat> but please go ahead and post on Facebook in the live stream. And I'm, sh I'm sorry, I, I can't share my screen because I'm using Chrome today and I normally don't use it. And you know, Ohio State has very strict security standards, so I, I'm not able to change the settings on Chrome so that I can share the book cover. But um, you know, uh, I'll definitely link to the book again uh, in the in the uh, podcast post, um, and I'll, I'll go ahead uh, also and just post that here to everyone if they want to follow up. Just the link to go to our podcast site. Loading. Ah, oh, yes, there it is. Okay. So hopefully that came came to everybody, and um, I want to thank everyone for sticking around for the whole hour. And um, thank you again, uh, Professor McCorston, for taking time out because you know um, I know that just all the work you're doing it it takes it takes a lot to carve out you know some time to uh, you know spend with us and I will do my best to make this valuable and keep growing our audience and growing hits on this podcast so people can learn about you. And I'm really excited about this podcast um, just in terms of um, getting a chance to have this conversation, really learn. I mean, I've learned about your work over the years, but it's just really nice to, to have a nice, long conversation about it and and really get to know it better so it's not just you know words on a page in a in a grant proposal and stuff like that it's like real life and i do i do want to um, really recommend landscape history of hadramaut it is written in a very engaging way and it's organized in such a way where um like I did, you can read the introduction and conclusion, and it's you know gives you these great stories about field work. I want to spark people's interest in in research through field work because it, it is uh, like for me, like I, I feel more excited about learning through actual physical action, and I think there are a lot of students out there like me um, who've always enjoyed learning that way and really interacting with people, and you know, and then also all the challenges that you encounter 
you know, it's, it's not easy and it's definitely not always glamorous to travel. <laughs> There's a whole spectrum of travel from tourism to, to deep field work, you know, when you have to follow like where the math tells you to go, for example, and it's just this kind of scary open field. <laughs> oh my gosh, I remember the time that we were camping it was kind of early in the season. I thought we were going to cook for ourselves. And after two days of that, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's no way we can do this. I was, you know, about to fall asleep on my feet from getting up at four in the morning just to get the tea water boiled for everybody for breakfast. And so I wow. said, we need a cook. We need a cook. And our dear Yemeni colleague, Abdul Basit, I thought, oh, it'll take weeks to get a cook. They'll have to advertise. And I'm just thinking very American. He drove to Sayun, seven hours away, um, went into the hotel kitchen, offered the cook more money than he was making right then in the hotel cook <laughs> kitchen. The cook quit. <laughs> he said, can we go by my house and pick up my clothes? He went, he came with, you know, this tiny wow. little bundle over his shoulder. And he stayed with us and cooked for the rest of the season. And it was the best food ever. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. Yeah, the food is so important. The challenges of field work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, when they say an army marches on the stomach, it's really true. Oh, it's so important. And then it also is socially important, you know, brings everyone together. So, yeah. And you've taken many OSU students out in the field with you as well. I usually take an undergraduate um, every season. And then, of course, there are graduate students who have participated as, uh, and are, you know, core members of the team who have come back year after year. But I'm very um, pleased to be able to take one undergraduate, usually just one. There you go. See? So those of you who stayed to the end and you're feeling inspired, who knows, maybe you'll have a chance to, to go out and do, do this kind of exciting field work one day and now you know the kind of questions to ask your professors and maybe you can even take a class with Dr. McCorston. So, so exciting. Thank you so much. Well, Any thank you for this, for this chance to talk with you and all of your listeners. And um, I am always pleased to have a, a venue where I can just talk about the work we do and why it really is important um, to support archeology span and to support you know, basic science. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. I mean, there's nothing like a conversation like this to make that that connection between our, you know, our our lives, our daily lives and basic science and basic research, you know, and how universities really are part of fabric of, of, of our lives. So thank you so much. And um, I think I'm going to go ahead and sign off unless there's anything else um, we need. Are there any other resources you want to share with um, with students having to do with um, Middle East archaeology or anything? Well, I have, um, there's the, uh, I'll send to you the um, web page site where there's updates on the news of our ongoing project in Oman. That um, That's a kind of a blog post, it's a series of blog posts which introduces the rest of the team. And I want to emphasize that this is really teamwork. You know, this isn't my research, it's our research and it doesn't happen without all those faces and all those shoulders to the wheel. So I'll, I'll send you that um, and hope to see people in class.
Yeah, great, great. Yeah, thank you so much. I'd love to do a follow-up interview one day just about teamwork. So ideas for the future too. And um, um, and I look forward to our next team meeting for our, our project to create a model for a OSU HBCU Federation. And um, I need to uh, put off a report that was due yesterday so I could prepare for this interview. So I'm going to work on that and definitely we'll be promoting our project in that as well. <laughs> so lots to do, lots to do. All right. Well, thank you. I'm going to go ahead and end the broadcast now. Thanks everyone who attended and um, for all of you listeners later on to the recording. Have a great day. Have a great day. Goodbye. Thank you, Belinda. Bye-bye.